It's finally arrived, the Radiothon for 2021. And the target for all of us is $250,000 to keep this station on air for yet another year. And we all pay a part. The program is pre-recorded, but people are on the phones at 3CR to take your pledges. Please show your support for the work that goes into producing this program every week. Two hours, it's a lot of work, but it's a labour of love for 3CR. So that phone number is 9419 8377. Or if you'd rather, 3cr.org.au. So during the program, there'll be plenty of encouragement to donate and keep this wonderful station on air. But also today, Professor Spencer. Zifkat talking about Australia's treatment of asylum seekers and our secret trials while the government criticises China for secret trials. Joe Montero from the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network talking about the kidnapping of a Venezuelan diplomat at Cape Verde. And if you don't know where Cape Verde is, it's about 800 kilometres in the Atlantic Ocean, a small island off the coast of Senegal, and guess who's asked for his extradition? Dr Margie Beavis, General Practitioner Doctor, teacher at Melbourne University, working for peace with the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, talking about the past year. Brian Terrell, peace activist since 1975, determined to keep up with his anti-war activism both at home and abroad, when it's possible. But first, where would Mr Kevin Healer be without 3CR? Yet another reason to keep 3CR on air for yet another year. And I'm sure he'll let you know a good reason or a few why you should keep this station on air. So that number, 94198377, or if you'd rather, 3cr.org.au slash donate. But I do encourage people to make sure that the station stays on air for its 42nd year. So let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when big supremo scuttlebin more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, stuck it up all those cynics who claim he doesn't have a climate change if there is such a thing policy by going green. Indeed, the we must go green for the good of the country, the good of the economy, which is the same thing. Let's check what he said. Here it is. Uh, yes, yes, even though rejected in the omnibus caring business class relations bill, we must have greenfield agreements or the caring business class won't invest in big projects and the resource industry. See? Green. They need certainty, the poor dears, and an agreement on wages and conditions for the life of the project or the life of the mine helps provide that certainty, the certainty that evil unions and lazy avaricious workers can't stuff things up by asking for pay increases in improved conditions every couple of years. The sheer common sense of this was highlighted by the sundry chambers of profits who got together to tell us Greenfield agreements were an utmost priority. The caring employer groups collectively urged the more lash sun government to pursue these modest and incremental caring business class relations reforms. 
the approach for the immediate objective of assisting Trublawasi workplaces and the economy and would set up our nation to consider more transitional workplace reforms in the next term of Parliament that would seek to align Trublawasi's IR system to the 21st century modern business environment. Direct quote, no embellishment leading us to ask why does something couched in benign phraseology sound so sinister? Uh, the 21st century business environment, we put the spokesperson Michael Bloated. Yes, he enthused, revealing himself a Beatles fan. Imagine there's no unions. It's easy if you try. No one to stop us. Profits piling high. Right and the gravity, the necessity to introduce Greenfields agreements urgently was supported by the Trublawasi Capitalist Review, which editorialised that if the Socialist Party rejected the proposal, it risked being portrayed as a threat to new mining projects. That is serious, and yet the evil unions and the Socialist Party showed they are a threat to new mining projects. Evil unions throwing up ludicrous suggestions like workers would have their wages and conditions frozen for years. A suggestion rightfully scoffed at by caring employers who said that was simply not so. Without quite explaining why it was simply not so. So, when Scavo is asked about Trublawati's climate change, if, there's, if there is credentials while observing the others, he can boast his greenfield support. Highly responsible and super-efficient AMP on the customers has been hit with charges over charging more than 2,000 customers' fees and services, well, non-services really, after being informed the particular customers were dead. AMP on the customers' graves, described rather unnecessarily by the Trublawasi Securities and Investments Commission as unconscionable behaviour. Charges arising from the Her Most Gracious Majesty's commission into the financial world, showing the mills of ASIC grind slowly but surely do they. Although in fairness, AMP on told shareholders this week it had informed ASIC about the matters in 2018, before the Her Most Gracious Majesty's commission began. Uh, so what brought on this decision to report? Uh, well, as soon as we knew, we'd be sprung at the commission. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the absolutely best defence. Just for the record, the Minister for Unbelievable Stupidity, Richard Colback Profits, was again asked how many aged care staff in facilities for which he is responsible have been vaccinated. No need to record this really, but his answer, you guessed it, I don't know. Just thought I'd mention that. wonder what he thinks he gets paid for. A U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world news outlet, ProPublica, published analysis showing the 25 richest U.S. of filthy rich of the filthy rich paid relatively little and sometimes nothing in federal taxes. That one of them, amazing wealth supremo Jeff Bezos, while his personal filthy rich swelled to $18 billion a couple of years ago, reported losses and received $4,000 credit from those who can't avoid their taxes. Naturally, the government reacted quickly, urgently to the revelation. It will attempt to extract more of their profits from the filthy rich, I hear you say. Well, no, no. It is investigating, taking criminal proceedings against ProPublica for the disclosure of private tax information. 
Well, we'd assume they wouldn't be totally unaware that the filthy rich of don't take paying taxes all that seriously, or certainly not as seriously as they take not paying taxes. No, no, correction, but they meet all their legal tax obligations. Similar government reaction here to Dr. Samantha Cromfoot's real name, whose firm did research for the military, which had the unintended consequence of uncovering the alleged war crimes committed by Creve Troublewasi youth. Young men and women in uniform just love their families and dear little children, life of the party, trained killers in Afghanistan. Afghan families and dear little children. Her research leading to the commission which found lots of alleged war crimes and now Samantha has written a soon to be published book Bloodlust, Trust and Blame arising from her findings. While we await any charges, if any, ever to be laid, the government would welcome the facts being discussed by Dr. Crombotes, I hear you say again and again no no, that giant mind, the Minister for Trained Killing Constable Peter Duffer, attacked her for taking advantage of a government contract, promising she would never again receive a trained killer contract, and he has sought legal advice about the publication, presumably to prevent it. Her crime apparently being that she exposed what they've been up to, little matters like war crimes. That was in the past, Peter dismissed them. I do have real, you know, like, concerns about the, the whole situation, and I just want to make sure, you know, like, that I get to the bottom of this, like, Pete said. An unnecessary diversion from his major objective of declaring war on evil China, informing us we need lots more U.S. of train killers and train killer merchants of death merchandise in Trublawazi because evil China posed a challenge, you know, like to liberal democratic values. He didn't quite explain how, but it's a bit like Joe or Biden capital defending US of values, which will come to shortly. We, we must prepare for, you know, like whatever threats loom. Pete was on the war path, and, and would it be disrespectful to suggest the biggest threat we can see looming is Pete? Speaking of defence, the major defence in that defamation case seems to be that train killing is train killing, and he was very good at his job. If he didn't kill Afghans, they would have killed him, leading us to ponder what we were doing killing Afghans in the first place, or more particularly in their place, and the real war criminals, those who sent them there to practice their profession of killing other people killing reputations, we caught up with one of the leading thinkers in the state-caring business class opposition, Louise Silly, following her recent medical procedure to extract her foot from her mouth. Couple of questions, Louise. Did you, one, hit your head when you fell? Two, call an ambulance? Three, call the, sorry, police? Four, had you spent a little too long in the member's bar? Five, what is your definition of a brain fade? And six, have you sent the state supremo the pejorative Dan a get well soon card? Oh, and if the answer to one, did you hit your head, is yes, do you think that might have made you silly? Sorry I can't provide the answers to those important questions, listener, but at that point, Louise called security, and the week that was was last seen tumbling down those steep Parliament House steps. And you can determine from the quality of other or otherwise of today's content whether I hit my head or not. 
As US of big supremo Joe Biden capital headed to Europe, he told a crowd of cheering train killers, I will be defending our values. Oh dear, it's a worry. Especially with our scummo over there observing all this. Bound to assure Joe, let me assure you, we too will defend your values, whatever they are. Finally, hate to admit it, but today, Tuesday Home Time has a common cause with caring employers. We both want to extract money from workers, with a small difference, like caring employers want to and do exploit them, well, exploit everyone, and Tuesday Home Time wants our money so we can continue to stick it up the caring business class, and on this program, all those exploiters worldwide whose treachery is discussed and exposed. So, listener... Join the caring business class and hand over your hard-earned. Good afternoon. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. The union movement stands in solidarity with students and all young people taking action today. And we stand in solidarity with you for two reasons. Firstly, because we believe in the rights of young people to have a say in our democracy. Do not let the conservative media try to silence you. Be loud and proud. As we know in the union movement, when we raise our voices together, we cannot be silenced. Secondly, we stand in solidarity as your struggle is our struggle too. Climate change is union business. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. and peaceful Australian network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Community Radio giving the voice to community since 1976. Yesterday I spoke with Spencer Zifkak, who is Professor of Law at Australian Catholic University. His principal areas of research and teaching are in public international law, comparative international law, international human rights law and international organisation. I began by pointing out that there will be three issues. The first is to do with Thanika 
seriously ill in hospital in Perth, mainly because this is an issue that's finally hit the headlines all over Australia. I'm just wondering where all the politicians, both Labor and Liberal, who are now crawling out of the woodpile supporting the end of at least this part of the family's torture to possibly return to Queensland, have been for years. And secondly, these two girls on Christmas Island are not the only young people who have suffered grievous harm from incarceration, courtesy of the Australian government and indeed the majority of Australians who vote for them and allow them to act as they do. It's refreshing to see that um, at least some politicians uh, realise um, how cruel our um, treatment of refugees uh, and asylum seekers uh, has been, seemingly now as a result of one of the Bilorila children getting very ill in detention in um, Christmas Island seems to have sparked a measure of conscience in our politicians, which has been notably absent um, for um, almost a decade now. So I'm very pleased, actually, that um, the Bilawila situation uh, seems to be turning people's minds to the the actuality of young children and their parents being subject to torture, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. And, of course, there's still no guarantee how they will be treated in Australia itself if they do come to Australia? I think the the obvious solution, uh, and one hopes that uh, the government will see sense in relation to this, the obvious solution is to allow them to go back to the community that dearly wants them to uh, return to live within that community. They're they're obviously widely liked in Biloela Township. Um, They wish to go to Biloela Township. They've got heaps of support there from the local community. And so the only sensible decision, actually, is for the minister to exercise uh, his discretion um, to release the family from detention and return them to Biloela, where they were understood as being extraordinarily um, valuable citizens. But it's really distressing, isn't it, that it has to get to this situation with a child critically ill before mm. something happens? Well, it's, it's, it is incredibly distressing. But uh, having said that, I mean, Australia's been detaining children, some hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, over the last decade or so. And to give the government credit, the uh, Liberal National Party government has been the government which finally uh, has released all children from detention. Um, and under the previous Labor government, sadly, there were still about a 1,000 children in detention. We give the government credit for that, um, but uh, their treatment of the Bilawala family has been absolutely disgraceful. Staying with detainees, the recent new amendments to the Migration Act that allows the federal government to lock up people in detention, immigration detention indefinitely, Refugee advocates say that the charges have been made following court decisions. What are those? Is there one court decision or was there more than one? There were two court decisions. The two court decisions arrived at the conclusion that um, the family did not meet the criteria for obtaining refugee status. That is, uh, they did not satisfy the courts on two different occasions that if they were returned to Sri Lanka they would be uh, open to the possibility of torture, 
cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. So um, that's significant. Uh, they failed to meet that test in the eyes of two independent and impartial courts. But that doesn't uh, help us with um, the situation uh, of mandatory detention, and particularly the mandatory detention of children. I mean, Australia is a party to the International Convention on the Rights of the Child, and that International Convention, um, which we are obliged now to observe, um, makes it very clear that uh, the detention of children indefinitely um, whether with their parents or otherwise, is impermissible at international law. So the government has to deal with its international obligations here, quite apart from the individual court decisions that have been made in this case. But when you've got the separation of powers being challenged in this way with the executive, as you say, versus the judiciary? The current case is a classic example of that. You've got... We've had a situation in this decision uh, which is called AJL. Judiciary has said that Mr AJL should be discharged from mandatory detention because the government, in effect, took no reasonable action towards removing Mr AJL from the country and therefore he languished in detention for five years and uh, still did under the court until the court released him. You had a situation there that the government took no active steps to affect his removal and no active steps had taken on the part of the executive government to remove a person. The only logical solution is to discharge those people from indefinite detention because one can't allow a situation to persist in which people are being detained for the purposes of removal but where a government takes no active steps to remove them, one um, accedes to the prospect that uh, even where a government takes no action to remove people, those people must necessarily continue to stay in detention. And that could last for years, decades. Well, how does this fit into international refugee conventions to which we are signatories? Well, Australia is bound by its obligations under the uh, International Refugee Convention, which was, came into effect now a long time ago in 1951 in post-war circumstances. And the essential rule uh, in the International Refugee Convention is that no person should be uh, returned by a country to which they've arrived and applied for asylum if to return the person to um, the country of origin would subject them to the possibility of torture, cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. The situation we had in this most recent case is that Mr AJL, as he is called, could not be returned to his country of origin, uh, which was Syria, and of course can't possibly return anybody to Syria currently, given that it's been involved in a civil war in which more than half a million people have been killed. It was very clear that the government could not return the person to uh, Syria. Uh, but the question then became, well, what should the Australian government do to uh, ameliorate that situation? Uh, the answer was that uh, the government should take every effective step possible to resettle that person, uh, either in Australia or in another country. Uh, and the government's position was, well, we're not resettling these people in Australia because we're not taking boat people. So the only other option that was available was for this person to be resettled in another country. 
but um, no other country could be found that would take them, which should be a surprise no one, given that there are some 60 million refugees and internally displaced people um, roaming around the world currently trying to find a home, and countries are desperate to retain some sort of orderly migration program. That's how we got into this problem. The problem was you, Mr. AJL could not be returned to Syria. It's too dangerous. Uh, the government therefore had an obligation to try and resettle the person uh, in some third country. No third country could be found, and in fact it was found by the court that the government was taking no active steps to find a third country. And given that it was taking no active steps to find a third country, the court said, well, we can't lock somebody up for five years, as this person had been locked up, um, if the government's taking no active steps to remove them. The court will move in and say, if you're taking no active steps to remove the person, then we will release them from detention. And that was a perfectly appropriate course of action for the court to take. The government didn't like that decision, but it was an obvious decision in all of the circumstances. Well, that means that the government is now the judge of whether someone stays in jail for the rest of their life. The government passed legislation to overcome that court decision in Mr H.L.'s case. The effect of the new legislation is, first, that the legislation confirms that the government, pursuant to its obligations under the International Refugee Convention, cannot return a person to a third to the country of origin, their country of origin, if to do so would be to risk they being they being tortured or treated cruelly. That left um, leaves us with the situation of the Australian policy of mandatory detention. But uh, what the legislation has done is remove the court's ability to um, release a person in the circumstances of that case. That is, a person may be continue to be detained in mandatory detention indefinitely, even if the government is not taking any steps to find a third country for them to go to. It's certainly a precedent. Uh, I mean, it's not just a precedent, it is uh, the state of Australian law. No judge can now step in and say, well, you're not taking any steps to remove this person. And given that you're not taking any steps and you haven't taken any steps for five years or so, I'm releasing the person because you're not pursuing your obligation to find a third country for the person to go to. So you can't just keep a person in mandatorily detained uh, indefinitely, but the legislation has removed the capacity of the courts to order the release of a person in this circumstance. The result of that is that theoretically, in law, uh, the government can detain a person who was a refugee or an asylum seeker indefinitely without take any active steps to remove the person. It's a stunningly uh, appalling um, piece of legislation. I'd imagine that judges would not be allowed and would not speak publicly about this. Judges won't speak publicly about it, no, and that's appropriate. Uh, we do have the separation of powers here. It's not for judges to enter the political arena, so no, judges won't speak publicly about it. Well, who's going to? The situation remains as it always has, that uh, agitation for uh, the reform of unjust uh, laws uh, rests with um, civil society organisations in the wider community. Uh, and what they have to try and do is persuade the government and opposition to change their positions. Was there any surprise in the opposition going along with this? 
it is surprising that the opposition should go along with it because their um, asylum policy should be somewhat more liberal. But as I said to you, it was the Labor government who presided over a system um, in which some 1,200 children were um, detained in Australia uh, in the early part of the uh, 21st century. Labor's record on this in government actually is has not been in any real sense more effective or more appropriate or more just than uh, the current government. And the reason for that um, is obvious. Mandatory detention of refugees and asylum seekers is very popular in the Australian electorate. The opinion polls have said consistently that 60% of Australia support uh, the policy of mandatory detention and so neither the government nor uh, the opposition is uh, very inclined at the moment to change the system of mandatory detention that we have. It's a very unfortunate situation and it's uh, morally reprehensible. Where does it leave Australia compared to other Western nations? Um, one of your political foci in your work is the area of international human rights law. Yeah. What Australia has done with its system of offshore processing uh, has breached uh, the terms of Australia's international treaty obligations in half a dozen different ways under half a dozen different treaties. Um, so Australia has stood apart from the rest of the world and introduced a system of offshore detention, which is in flat contradiction to the terms of the International Refugee Convention and in flat contradiction to the Convention Against Torture, the Convention in relation to civil and political rights, uh, and several other conventions. So um, we're in clear breach of international law. Now, the question you asked me just before that is how do we compare with other countries? Well, we are the worst country in this respect uh, amongst any Western democracy anywhere else in the world. The Europeans haven't done this. The British haven't done this. The Americans haven't done this. We lead the world in uh, the adoption of such a cruel policy. Now, having said that, there are a couple of European countries that are now considering to adopt the Australian model, but let's hope that uh, in the end that they do not and uh, that this case, uh, the Biloela case, is sufficient to persuade not only the Australian population, which it clearly has, um, but other countries who are considering such a cruel policy from um, actually implementing it at any time uh, in the foreseeable future. The third issue... I'd like you to talk about his secret trials. We hear a great deal about secret mm. trials in China and condemnation mm. of China, but mm -hmm. we have here in Australia mm. Witness K and Berna Caleri, and then we had yep. Witness J, just quoting from an ABC investigation, 13 words uh, are all there is to say on the public record is to note one of the most extraordinary episodes in Australian legal history. We don't even know how many others there are, do we? We don't actually know um, if, a, if a trial has been held completely in secrecy. The only trial we know of recently uh, that was held entirely in secrecy was the Witness J trial, and that was another whistleblowing case uh, in relation to matters um, of national security. It's only fairly recently that we even understood that Witness J was, had been subjected to a secret trial. The current case, though, in relation to uh, Mr. Colleri and Witness K, has been in the news for ever since 2013, when 
the prospect that they might be prosecuted for having exposed to the public gaze Australia's reprehensible treatment in East Timor, that is, by Australian government bugging the East Timorese uh, cabinet in order to obtain a legal advantage in international courts, was exposed to public scrutiny. Now, there's been argument for the last three years in relation to uh, this case about whether and to what extent the trial of Witness K, who was an ACES officer uh, involved in organising the bugging of these Timorese cabinet uh, upon the instruction of the government, and Mr Caleri, who was his legal representative, should be held in secret. The government has been arguing strongly that this is a trial that also should be held in secret because to hold it openly would be to prejudice national security. Now, that procedural argument uh, continues, astonishingly. There have been some 50 different hearings about whether or not the uh, trials should be held in secret or not. The most recent decision of the ACT Supreme Court in relation to the matter uh, reached a decision that um, some parts of the trial should be held in secret, other parts of the trial might be held openly. And in fact, uh, both the... Mr. Caleri, who's the person who's the subject of the current uh, prosecution, uh, openly admits that some parts of the trial ought to be held in secret. More than happy with that, but he's not happy at the extent of the cloak of secrecy that will be thrown over the entire trial, which is what the government would like. That's where we are with that one. <clears throat> in relation to the case of Mr. Caleri and Witness K, uh, the position we're in is that both sides agree that some parts of the trial could, could be held in secret because there may be matters prejudicial to national security that are discussed. What it's boiled down to currently is to what extent will the trial be held openly and to what extent will, be, it, will it be held in secret. The government wants it all to be held in secret. Mr. Caleri says, well, I'm happy to um, have part of the trial uh, in secret for national security reasons, but the bulk of the trial should be held openly. That's where we are, and it is absolutely inevitable that um, this case will go to the High Court now. Would the government be pushing for the verdict to be secret as well, or would that come out? Well, that will come out. You could imagine that, that this going on for the time it has as a, a form of psychological torture for these two men, and I could imagine what Witness J must have gone through. Yes, well, <clears throat> we don't know very much about the Witness J case, so I can't really comment on that one. In relation to Witness K and uh, Mr Caleri, it is very clear that they've been subject to extreme stress. The case has uh, almost bankrupted both of them. The government has spent now almost $4 million in legal fees to try and uh, prosecute these two people, and we haven't even got to a trial yet. And uh, Mr Caleri is quite open about the fact that um, it's placed him under extraordinary pressure uh, and his health is suffering as a result. Just looking back on what we've talked about today, how does that impact on your work as a lecturer, the work that you do? My uh, obligation as a human international human rights lawyer uh, to draw human rights abuses to the attention of the Australian community and uh, the international community, and that's what I try and do and what uh, my many colleagues across the country try and do. It's important that both governments uh, and 
citizens know exactly what is happening. If what the government is doing is breaching its international human rights obligations, then the government ought to be brought to made accountable for those breaches of international law. Uh, international human rights lawyers like me uh, seek every possible avenue to draw the government to account, including in the court of public opinion, and to place pressure on the Australian government to uh, <coughs> reflect uh, deeply on uh, not only on the legal issues that are involved here, but um, on uh, its uh, treatment of for example, children in detention, um, asylum seekers on Manus Island and Nauru, and unjust treatment of other people in many other, many different respects, uh, in order to um, raise ethical and moral issues about um, the appropriateness or inappropriateness of government action. But as you've said, it's the education and the knowledge for those 60% of the Australian population support the government policy. Yes, that's right. That's the only way this will change. Thank you very much, Spencer. It's a great pleasure and thank you for inviting me. I've been speaking with Professor Spencer Zivkap from the Australian Catholic University. And as I said earlier, this is a pre-recorded program, so if you've already donated, thank you so much. And I'll be reading out the pledges on the program next week. If you haven't yet, please do, 94198377, or if you'd rather do it online, 3cr.org.au slash donation. And let them know that you want to go to Tuesday Home Time. With hundreds of millions of dollars being donated by our largest corporations to the major parties to basically buy outcomes for those donations. And that really skews the political system and it's why we don't see action on climate change. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. Achievements like the Disability Royal Commission are where... Disabled people came together for decades to work to achieve this historic investigation. And between that and the wonderful work of the student strike movement for climate of extinction rebellion and so many more community powered campaigns and movements across the nation, that also gives you a lot of hope and a lot of reason to continue the work for a better future for everybody. 3CR Radiothon, community powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal.
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Why is a former Colombian businessman, son of Lebanese and Palestinian immigrants, now a nationalised Venezuelan diplomat, languishing in isolation in the African island nation of Cape Verde? An archipelago of volcanic origin in the Atlantic Ocean off the northwestern coast of Africa, about 600 kilometres west of Senegal, facing extradition to the United States and the focus of an international campaign for his immediate release. I'm talking about Alex Saab, and to find out why all this is happening to this man, I spoke with Joe Montero, a member of the Venezuela-Australia Solidarity Network. Joe, you'd have to say that Alex is an interesting man, with an interesting background, both family and place of birth. What could you tell us about this man? Early background as a businessman. He comes from a Lebanese and Palestinian parents who migrated to Colombia, and he ended up migrating to Venezuela and became a Venezuelan citizen. And with the rise of Chavez, in Venezuela, he became a Chavist and he became active in the movement. And his main area of activity was in the distribution of food to people who didn't have enough food. So that was his background. He also, in later life, he became a, um, an ambassador. He ended up as ambassador to Iran and he became centrally involved in the... Uh, procurement of food and medicines and other supplies that were being denied to the people of Venezuela through the blockade imposed under the leadership of the United States. So that was the background. He himself, on a flight to his work as ambassador in Iran, was dragged out of a plane as, that landed in transit at Cape Verde by the uh, authorities of that island nation. It turns out, and the evidence has come out, was admitted by the prosecutor just days ago that the United States had pressured the Cape Verde government to grab him and have him held to be sent to the United States to stand trial. So this was the event that actually led to his, what people have called a kidnapping, because it violates laws. Because the United States has not recognised the existing government of Nicolas Maduro, it does not recognise immunity for diplomats acting for that government. So that's how they justify uh, he's grabbing. The problem has been that, yeah, there's a bit of a grey area there, although it is, uh, you know, that I understand the various tribunals and certainly, uh, you know, the, the relevant committee of the United Nations has declared this as illegal, but it's not been accepted by the United States or the, you know, the authorities that grabbed him. Now, 
Alex Sab has been for just over a year, because he was grabbed on June the 4th last year, has been held in solitary confinement, often with no light. He has been tortured. He has been denied access uh, to his family and supporters. I think it was three days ago there were a group of supporters actually did turn up outside the prison and tried to get access, and they were denied yet again. So he's been kept in communicado. We don't know uh, really the state of his health. Another factor compromising his health, of course, is that he is actually suffering from cancer and needs cancer treatment urgently. Now, he's been missing out on that for just over a year, as I said. Uh, the United States is trying to... Well, two things. Uh, because he was involved in negotiations for supplies from Iran of those basic needs that have been denied... Uh, to the people of Venezuela, obviously he was uh, is regarded as being a problem in that regard. But I think we also need to consider that this shift towards extradition is becoming a policy of the United States. Uh, certainly over wars in, in the Middle East, some years ago that was done. We got Guantanamo Bay that was actually filled with... Quite a few people who'd gone through this experience had been extradited through third countries. Uh, we've also got the case of Julian Assange, which is a clear case of a very similar sort of process. So, so this thing of targeting people, foreign nationals, who they consider political enemies, is becoming a more frequent practice for the United States. And it doesn't matter whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden our president, it is still the same practice. So we need to be really concerned about this because, again, on this case, the United States, the little that's coming out of there, saying that, well, their law applies everywhere on this planet, although law, international law and the laws of other nations don't apply to the United States. That is a policy that's been carried through still. Well, various UN bodies have, have investigated... <laughs> his situation, haven't they? And they're very critical of yes. the government of Cape Verde. They are. And not only that, it's been also there in Africa itself, the, the community, economic community, West Africa, which is, which is a court system, has declared his abduction illegal. One part of that is that the government of Cape Verde did not go through its own legal process, through its court system. It was a political decision at the government, and it was from the government that actually ordered the police, I understand, to move in and apprehend him. So there was no warrant, no uh, determination by a court that he was suspected or had created a crime. Now, what since then, and that was a couple of days after his abduction... Uh, they insisted they did that over a money laundering investigation. So that was after the fact. There had been before that uh, the United States, I believe it was the United States initiated, there'd been an investigation on him over money laundering in relation to payments for supplies in his ambassadorial role 
for Venezuela for input, to pay for those inputs. Now, there was no, absolute no evidence. The case actually fell over. The, it's interesting to say the United States is not coming out clearly now and saying they want him for money laundering. What they're saying is they want to try him for conspiracy. Now, it's unclear what that conspiracy is about. There is a connection with Assange on this because Assange is wanted for being a traitor, although he's not a citizen of the United States. And Saab is wanted, Alex Saab is wanted for conspiracy, presumably, in carry out an action which is not in interest of the United States, although he's not a citizen of the United States. And there's no evidence he's actually directly been involved in actually organising anything, any attack on the United States in any way. So it's all pretty flimsy. Well, then you look at the connection between the government of Cape Verde and the government of the United States. What sort of hold would the US have over that small island nation? Well, the hold is that it is a small island nation with its own internal economic and other problems and it's heavily dependent on the economic support of the United States. Uh, so it's very vulnerable to pressure. It's also in a strategic place, being in the Atlantic Ocean. So the United States got quite an interest in the place. It, there's a question of, of what... I mean, there is a choice, but given a, unless you have a leadership in the government that's, that's very strong, it is very hard to overcome this sort of pressure. I mean, that, that's the reality. You know, that doesn't exist in Cape Verde at the moment. Well, also, where does international law fit into anything anymore? If the United States can take this well, the United States, the, Well, there's been a series of cases over the last decade or two that have ruled against actions of the United States as being contrary to international law. And the United States response from Washington has been consistently that international law does not apply to them. You know, it's, it's like decisions of the United Nations uh, itself, you know, other areas there that if I go against the United States, the United States position is that it doesn't apply to them, that, you know, it's this policy of exceptionalism. They maintain falsely that their role in the world is as the defenders of democracy and sometimes I need to cut a few corners to defend democracy. All depends what you mean by democracy, doesn't it? Precisely. Precisely. And, you know, increasingly people are finding that there's a great deal of hypocrisy here. I mean, the reality is that the, that the standing of the United States as a protector of democracy has never been so low. I mean, that's the reality. And we don't get the picture here because, you know, if we look at world opinion outside the uh, Murdoch-like media here, the reality is that the bulk of world opinion and the bulk of governments are not in favour of the actions of the United States. What we get access to, you would think the opposite was the truth. But that is the reality, whether it's Venezuela or other issues, that uh, most of the world does not agree. 
I mean, a lot of things, uh, deal was made out about the 50 nations representing the fellow Guaido, the fellow in Venezuela who declared himself president a couple of years ago. But the reality is 50 nations is a quarter of the number of members of the United Nations. And of those 50 nations, most of them have pulled away since. Uh, the European Union, for instance, no longer recognises Guaido. In the face of the Australian government still does, but in the face of this, Joe Biden has said his latest comment on that was that they will support him until December this year and then uh, reassess the situation. So it's not like it's this world sort of unity saying Maduro's out and Guaido should be in. It's the other way around. And, you know, one of the disturbing things here, for instance, the Alex sad case has been silent in our media. There is no reporting of it. You could say virtually no reporting of it. And, you know, the double standard is that if if somebody says boo to somebody they like, and then there's this suddenly headlines about attacks on human rights. I mean, one example is, and I'm not saying, I'm not judging on what's happening there, is what's his name, Navadny in Russia who's been charged, he is presented as a champion of democracy. But if you really look at what he stands for and the organisation he heads stands for, is principles like white supremacy. Navani looks and his organisation have very much, at least the appearance, reading their own stuff, of neo-Nazis. That is never mentioned. And there's a question of how far should we allow people who preach race hatred and you know, promote all, all the stuff around it should be permitted to continue their activities and say the things that are actually harming people. Now, we don't hear that. We just get presented that he's a champion of democracy. Yeah, there are other people who have been persecuted we don't hear about. So... That's something we should be very concerned about in Australia. Yet there is an international free Alexander Solidarity Committee, as you've mentioned. Yes, yes, there is. Uh, and at the, there's, also, there's also a call being made that includes quite a few uh, prominent people. Again, something we don't hear about. I just mentioned that Alfred Desires, uh, who was... Uh, you know, uh, involved or is involved with the United Nations Human Rights Council, Noam Chomsky, New York thinker, a number of journalists, uh, prominent journalists around the place, Bishop Philippe Texiera, he's actually uh, in Cape Verde, he's obviously a bishop there, other politicians in Cape Verde, in the United States, the United, the United uh, Steelworkers Union, has actually joined in the call. Uh, there are a variety of other people. Max Blumenthal, who people will recognise, he sometimes writes for The Guardian. Uh, he's also involved with Grey Zone, which is, which is a community news service in the United States. So we've got various lawyers, human rights lawyers, academics, other people who are well-known in their own countries who have actually joined this call for the freeing of Alex Saab. 
the support is building. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on 3CR with Jan Bartlett and it's Radiothon Day 94198377 if you'd like to donate today. And I'm speaking with Joe Montero, a member of the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network. I'd imagine there's a few people on the island of Cape Verde who are very disturbed about this as well. Yeah, well, it would be. I know, and if you've got uh, a bishop from there, uh, and some other, there are some other political identities and others. So that some of them have put their names to the call, but I'd assume they'd be very concerned. A lot of people there because if the government of Cape Verde is prepared to knuckle under and do this on behalf of the United States, what else are they going to do to Cape Verde citizens? You know, where does this stop? I mean, they have climbed on a pretty slippery slide. And there's also the violation of diplomatic immunity. Well, there is. Oh, well, I said before, they claim there isn't because he is not a legitimate ambassador. Which again is questionable, uh, and we need to say who's the is the somebody appointed by Guaido a legitimate ambassador, although has not been appointed by an elected government. Okay, well you've got a man in solitary confinement on an island, 800 kilometres off the continent of Africa, as I said, in solitary confinement, no medical care. Where does that fit in? Well, I think by any definition, it's a violation of a basic right, and that in its office should be classified as torture, which is supposed to be illegal as well. Do we need a campaign here as well? Yes, I I think uh, people here need to be made aware of it, and... If it's going to be a fair dinkum in any sense about democracy and rights, the Australian government should be saying that's not right and should itself join the call for his freedom. They are not going to do that that easily because, uh, again, they're very much under the influence of Washington and it's going to depend on people in Australia actually pushing for it. Just spend a couple of minutes... Joe talking about the situation in Venezuela itself. What are you learning about Yeah, that? well, the, the situation in Venezuela is, at the moment, there is a process for uh, election of a constitutional assembly. Again, uh, where this means that the social movements, that is the organised communists, the communal organisation at the grassroots are selecting their candidates and voting through their organisations. The opposition that's close to the United States are saying that this is an affront to democracy. The other thing that's happening is that the government, which does have some opposition people involved and are supporting it, has just passed two pieces of legislation that will actually make it easier for the Comuna movement to actually grow. The grassroots movement uh, that's seen there as a system of grassroots community control or community power. Now, the Chavista movement sees that as, as 
a principal part of developing a popular, should we say, the way they call it, a popular political power that is far more democratic than the parliamentary system alone that they have inherited. And that is the, the main complaint of the opposition says that is anti-democratic because it downgrades the role of politicians. The Chavistas say the role of politicians should be to serve the people and it should, it should be to empower the people not to take power off them. So that's the argument that's going on there. The United States' position has, is also that the development of this movement is undemocratic. And, you know, I've said it before, there's sort of claims of dictatorship and, and attacks on democracy by the Venezuelan government. I mean, what I've witnessed there is that it's actually the other way around. But also, if you look at the media itself, because there's often things, oh, you know, media's restricted, uh, journalists are jailed, da, 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 and so on and so forth. The reality is, on the ground, if you're there, most of the media is anti-government. Most of the traditional media, I'm talking about newspapers, TV, radio. Not only are they anti-government, they, they openly call for insurrection. Yet, they are still there. They have not been shut down. The real argument is that the minority of media, and it, and it does have a lot of influence, the Chavista media should not be allowed to exist. That is really what they're arguing, but they don't say it in those terms. The problem that traditional media ha has is that the majority of Venezuelans turn to the Chavista media for their information and they're losing their hold on the population. They do on a section of the population still have some hold, but it is much less than it used to be. So, and they do publish a lot of our, a lot of material that's actually not from Venezuela. It's from the immigrant communities in Miami and Colombia. They produce the news, and it is repeated in Venezuela. But Venezuelans know where it comes from, and they know that it's not true. But we get the same information, the same news here. You know, for instance, this process, the new laws uh, that have just been passed through the parliament, this process of electing representatives of communities into a body, it's not been reported on in countries like Australia. Not at all. We have recently the uh, Venezuela Solidarity Campaign. We've just recently received a reply to a letter we sent to the Department of Foreign Relations. Their position is, uh, the letter point blank says, we do not consider the government of Venezuela as a legitimate government. We support the government of Juan Guaido and... That's it. That is, the, that is the official position of the department, and that comes through from the Australian government. So there is a lot of misinformation going on there. Outside that, I think it's pretty much the same. The other, I suppose, one advantage Venezuela has that quite a few of the incursions into Venezuela, well, most of them really, have come through Colombia. Colombia now is in its own crisis with Colombians. Colombians have risen against 
the attacks of their governments on their rights. And it's, uh, well, it's in trouble. Yes, the government's killed a lot of people uh, over the last weeks. It's still going on, and they're in deep trouble, and they are not so much in a position to target Venezuela at the moment. From Venezuela's point of view, that's a good thing. But, yeah, we've got to watch what happens in the future because I think there there is likely to be more military-typing incursions into Venezuela in the time to come. The other thing that's changing the, uh, I suppose, the mood on the South American continent is the rise of movements of resistance against neoliberalism and you know, poverty in general in a range of countries. Uh, you know, from Ecuador, we've, we've got Guatemala now, Suez Colombia, and, and the upheaval that began in Chile and other countries, uh, the changes in Argentina, all these things are not moving in the direction the United States would like. Even, I think we could include Mexico in that. There is some movement going on there. So the United States got, a tr- got some trouble in Latin America, where a few years ago it thought that it reclaimed its position as the dominant force there. Now it's not so clear. We, we've just had an election in Peru where the, it looks like the Fujimori dynasty might have come to an end. So things are moving there as well. This creates a, a more favourable situation for the Venezuelan government. And, and we have to really acknowledge that without the support of its own people, without growing support internationally, and there is, there are a number of movements that are developing internationally, it wouldn't have lasted. It wouldn't have lasted all these years, uh, this serious, unprecedented attack on the government, or series of attacks. And we have to say that, you know, that there's a political and uh, economic war being waged against Venezuela. And they are surviving. They are continuing. Difficult, but they haven't been beaten. Just finishing, Joe, back to Alex Saab. He was facilitating supplies coming from Iran, food, pharmaceuticals, consumer goods. What does it mean now that Alex has been jailed for helping the people of Venezuela from Iran? What has Iran said about this? As far as I know, Iran has not become involved, but... I think if we look at the we look at the record, Iran's not going to cave in because of this. Iran's going to be even more determined to keep on doing what it's been doing. Uh, Iran itself is a target of a vicious attack, and the Iranians know what's at stake. They've got a great history of communication of contact with Venezuela. And it's not only in the sense of the latest political thing. I think it's, uh, you know, there's, there is a Middle Eastern community in Venezuela, particularly in Caracas, which includes Iranians. There's quite a few Palestinians living there. 
the other people say there is there is an historical tie there, and it's not going to be broken. And the more attacks and actions like what's been committed against Alex Saab is only going to strengthen these ties. At the moment, I believe that there is another ship uh, loaded with petrol, another tanker loaded with petrol, uh, heading towards uh, Venezuela. So, you know, it hasn't interrupted that. And from Venezuela's point of view, yes, they want Alex, who, who is seen as a bit of a hero in Venezuela, they want him freed. But, uh, you know, it's not going to stop them communicating with Iran. That's the point. Uh, and I think to point out, I mean, Iran, uh, and the, you know, it's kind of said, although not openly, uh, has recently lost a ship in the Persian Gulf through explosion. The word is around the world that this was not, not an accident, it was a deliberate explosion that was created to actually sink sink the ship. So there's all these sorts of stuff there, and the United States hasn't learned yet that the more they attack uh, these countries, the more these countries are going to resist them. Thank you so much, Joe. Okay, a pleasure. Speaking there with Joe Montero from the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network. And on Tuesday home time, over many, many years, I've spent time with activists from many countries, both from that country themselves or activists here in Australia working with them, fighting for independence, human rights, and particularly freedom from interference in their countries, running. And, of course, Venezuela is certainly one of those over many years. So if you can help keep 3CR on air so that we can continue to support activists all around the world who are fighting for their freedom. That number is 94198377 or you could go on to line to 3CR.org.au slash donate and nominate Tuesday Home Time. So please make sure that you keep this radio station and many particular Tuesday Home Time on air for yet another year. I've been doing this for a long time now. I'm actually doing it from home at the moment. So 94198377 Join the power Create the power Donate to 3CR's Radio Fund. Call now, 94198377, or visit 3cr.org.au and keep independent radio alive. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and Streaming Life at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us. 
like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Today, catching up with a very busy Dr. Margie Beavis, general practice doctor, teaching with first-year students at Melbourne University with medicine, a vice president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and also with ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. To find out how she's not only managing all these roles, but how it's been with COVID-19 thrown in. First, Maggie, you work in general practice, and I asked you this same question about a year ago. How much more difficult to work with a virus in the community as a GP? It's wonderful we have this vaccine, be it AstraZeneca or Pfizer. They're both the way back to normal life um, in terms of, I think what's really disappointing is how much the media have played on the side effects. Now, the side effects are an issue. Every vaccine has side effects, and they're usually pretty rare. And it's very interesting in that I work in Melbourne, as you know, and up until about two weeks ago, we were getting many, many cancellations. People would book in ahead. My clinic has been giving vaccinations, and we were getting lots of cancellations because people were reading about the blood clots and cancelling um, we only give AstraZeneca. Now, the blood clots, they're about between 1 in 70,000 and 1 in 100,000, depending on age and a very number of other factors. But the doctors got much better at recognising them and treating them. So, in fact, the death rate from this is really, really very rare, you know, less than 1 in a million, whereas the benefit is enormous because the vaccines reduce the risk of hospitalisation and death from COVID by over 90%. So it's, it's wonderful to have the vaccines. It's very interesting. In the last two weeks, it's been really, really busy because everybody suddenly wants the vaccine again. So it's gone from having lots of appointments cancelled to being sort of people ringing up and saying, please, can you fit me in? In terms of the vaccine rollout, I think it's been pretty disappointing. And I do think the sooner people get the vaccinations, the better for the community, just as a whole. Um, there's so much that's still being held back by COVID. Interestingly, really, I was talking to a couple of colleagues about this yesterday at work, and really, we think it would be would have been better if the government had treated the COVID vaccine like the flu vaccination in that given it to general practice and said to all general practices, you do it. Because in our area, we've had a terrible time because we put ourselves up to give the vaccinations and then found that the government was only accepting a few general practices to do it. And so we were the only one, or there was two of us in about five surrounding suburbs. So we just got completely swamped at the beginning with when when the health minister said you know ring your gp and get a vaccination well we were getting calls from not just our patients but from patients sort of far and wide who their own clinics weren't doing it so and there have been other announcements it, it, it's been also disappointing the communication of the federal health department and general practice because they say things and they don't realize what that does to a gp clinic in terms of our phones just there'd been days where we have six lines. Every All of the six lines are running completely and, and more, and the reception staff just got completely hammered. So it, it's, been, it's been a bit disappointing how it's been run. I'm hoping, I think in future, it'll end up becoming like the flu vaccine. We'll get boosters every six to 12 months for the various variants, just as we get boosters every year for the flu vaccine, which is, covers the variants that have come out in the last 12 months. So I think that's what it'll end up. 
I just think it's a shame that more general practices haven't... I think the government should open up to more general practices to do it, and I think they're starting to do that. I even wonder personally about getting chemists to do it because I think the sooner we can get this rolled out, the sooner we can go back to what's much more closely normal life. Just looking at the illnesses or sicknesses that your normal patients have, have you found that they're staying away because of their fear of catching the virus? They certainly did last year. They certainly did last year. There were things that sort of turned up after the lockdown that should have been attended to sooner. Things like breast lumps and other stuff that but you should see someone quickly rather than wait or, you know, if you've got bleeding for your bowel or whatever. And certainly there was a period last year where people were afraid to be around general practices with good reason. Um, there was a lot of circulating coronavirus and it was, work was, the general practices were not a particularly safe place. Certainly a lot safer than the hospitals. I think now not so much. I think people understand that the current outbreak is uh, not as bad as it was and the contact tracing and the isolation of people who've got coronavirus seems to be much, much better. The contact tracers have done a terrific job putting so many people into isolation who may have contacted the virus. But, I'd, yeah, it was a shame last year. Just wondering, Margie, if you've got an opinion on why the media, the mainstream media, has been so negative about the vaccine. Has that been the case with other vaccines? Well, certainly there's been a lot of false information about earlier vaccines. I mean, there was a whole lot of, uh, firstly, a bad medical paper, but then lots and lots of ongoing talk about measles, mumps and rubella vaccines causing autism, which was subsequently proved to be completely false. I think the media, it, it was very interesting to me last year, the media focus on what they deem as quote-unquote newsworthy, and that often tends to be the negative or the conflict a good news story doesn't sell many papers and doesn't get many clicks online. I thought it was fascinating last year, after all the, the sort of um, backbiting and complaining and publication about how terrible lockdown was in Melbourne, you actually asked people, the people actually surveyed, most people in Melbourne were very happy to be locked down. That they, I mean, they didn't want to be locked down, but they certainly supported the lockdown and understood the public health priority that it was. And I, I, I actually was really proud of Melbourne last year in terms of people doing, not everybody, but the vast majority of people doing what was asked of them. And as a result, we did get back to effectively close to normal life. So I'm hopeful that this current one will pass soon, but I was really proud of us as a community. The media did not help. The media really blew it up and beat it up. And as I said, I think it's more about selling papers and getting clicks. But I think the reality was people did support it and could see the, the reason behind it. Your work also with students, medical students at Melbourne Uni, what was your role prior to COVID and, and what is your role now? The thing I spend most time on is tutoring. I do a little bit of lecturing, but it's mostly I'm a tutor. Last year, I felt so sorry for the students, particularly in second semester, although in first semester too. I teach um, how to talk with people and, and get a medical history, but also how to examine people. And it's, it's, it's sort of slightly surreal and a bit absurd trying to teach students how to examine a patient over a Zoom call. They did their best, but it's very, very hard to teach how to, to do a proper examination just over a video. And in fact, I ended up doing some extra tutorials for my last year's students this year in a park <laughs> where we just took a picnic blanket and did some, some skills teaching in a, in a fairly <laughs> a private part of a park just because I think it was important to 
show them hands on what's needed. How do you believe they're coping? I am incredibly impressed with the students that we have. Most of the people doing med have worked so long and hard to get in there and they're usually 23, 24. I think they cope well. I think they cope much better when they can work as a group. I think being home alone is really tough. So I'm sure there are some that do find it extremely tough. But I think um, this year, um, this group, we've only had one only last week was on Zoom and prior to that they were all in, in person and they were very relaxed and collegial. My my, my tutor group was very sort of seemed a very yeah, they, they work together well and they, they seem to get on well. All right, well let's look at another hat, the Medical Association for Prevention of War. It's an Australia wide organisation working for the reduction of the world's resources away from war and and towards peace, health and justice. What's been happening over the last year? Well, we've really supported strongly the United Nations call for a ceasefire so that people could focus on health issues with the coronavirus rather than on conflict. Um, it came out early last year and was a really clear a clarion call for really reducing. And, and it did reduce, I can't remember the specifics, but there were a few areas where there was less conflict and more focus on, on health. We've continued to work on a number of issues, um, the increasing militarisation of Australian society, and that's reflected in a number of areas, one area being school education. We know that there's a lot of weapons company money funding programs in schools around STEM education, and that's been a big concern, and also at universities have done some work there. Particularly in Canberra, there's half a billion, $496 million, so it's a lot of money, proposed to extend the War Memorial, which is just absurd given that um, there are so many other areas that need funding and the War Memorial already is a very reasonably large museum, large memorial. The main reason for the extension was to display large military objects, which is, is when you think that currently the Australian archive, which details Australia's history and has wonderful resources like videos from the 20s and 30s, you know, footage that will, will disappear and other so much that needs to be archived about Australia's whole history, not just its military history. Australian Archives is so starved of funds that it says it's losing material and has been resorting to crowdfunding to try and save Australia's historical documents and records. So for them to be putting $496 million into showing off military objects versus actually funding the preservation of the real Australian history on so many fronts is, is really just showing how powerful the military influences are in our political leaders because it's got by the War Memorial um, extension, it's got bipartisan support. That process, the War Memorial is in the final leg of its process and I think you might be talking to Sue wherever about that on another occasion. You mentioned that the arms manufacturers are involved in schools and universities. How serious is that? I think it's very serious because it's tending to influence STEM education towards military research and really um, also normalising the military in our society. It's a bit like Border Force used to be plain old boring customs and immigration and a few years back they transformed it with their staff having uniforms, paramilitary uniforms. It's, It's really not okay for the military to be quite so normalised because really a lot of money is spent in the military field. I mean, currently, with the current projections, the Australian government is is, is currently on average spending more than a billion dollars a week 
on defence because it's so massively ramped up our defence spending. And two things, we're, we're the fourth biggest weapons importer in the world and we also risk sparking a, an arms race in our region. So it's really very, very actually appalling how much we're spending on defence and especially they justify a lot of it by saying this is job creation. I think if I've said on previous programs, there's really clear evidence that if you're going to spend money, you get much more, many more jobs in health, many more jobs in education, many more jobs in renewable energy if you spend the equivalent amount of money. So the fact that so much money is being spent on defence is, there's many reasons for that, but not least is, is undue influence and, and the sort of persuasiveness of many uh, military and defence companies in our political sphere. And of course it's always framed as defence. In reality it's often... Oh yeah. It's interesting, the Joint Strike Flag, which I've also talked to your listeners about before, but this plane, surprisingly, is what it, it's the F-35 jets, which have been a really deeply flawed, technically very poor, but also very expensive, are designed for attack. They're, they are joint strike fighters. They're designed for attack jointly with the US and to strike other countries. And it's very clear that they are slower than some of the older jets. So the Americans say, oh, well, they're designed to fly with the F-22 Raptors, which are much faster, snazzier jets. But they won't sell those to anybody else. So we're left with these jets that are designed to fly with another sort of jet that we don't have. They're designed for attack. They're not designed for defence. And you quite arguably could say that the Joint Strike Fighters have made Australia's ability to defend itself worse, not better. And the submarine program is likewise, if they say it's being reviewed, it's a, a vast expenditure. It's now up to $90 billion and counting. And for submarines that are not going to come off the production line probably till the mid-2030s, they justify it saying these submarines are going to be in service till 2070. Well, with drone technology and artificial intelligence and sensor Sensor technology improving so much, I think that's absolutely laughable. I mean, it would be laughable saying you're going to drive a 50-year-old car or a 40-year-old car and expect it to keep pace with other countries, but also with drones and underwater drones, I think spending so much on a future submarine project is very foolish. Are you aware of how inculcated drones are in the military at the moment? I think there's a lot. There's an article came out last... There's certainly... Australia is spending on drones. We as Australians are joining the US. The US has a large drone program that has killed many people in countries they're not even at war with and a lot of civilians, over a thousand civilians, including a lot of children. And Australia is involved in that because we provide the intelligence and sort of the the Pine Gap works as sort of big eyes and big ears and feeds a lot of information straight back through to the US and they use that for their drone technology, their drone attacks. So Australia is actually culpable in these illegal attacks on, I mean, they're basically extra extrajudicial killings. There's no judicial process and the Americans are going around killing people in other countries and I find that appalling and that's been going for some years. Talk of drone, Australians drones being used overseas, Australian technology being used in drones overseas that have been highly problematic and there's some stuff that came out last week which I thought I must read about that and I actually haven't read about it but I, you might know better Jan about last week's emergence of Australian involvement in drones but we've certainly been involved in illegal drone attacks for a very long time. Can you talk for a few moments about Albert, the Israeli war manufacturer and, and what's going on with the Australian government and I know that many people including Palestinians say that 
Albert produces all these new weapons and they try them out on the Palestinians and then they say, well, they're proven, but they don't say how they're proven. Yes, I was reading an article saying that one of the, the things that was good for good for the weapons manufacturers was this exchange of rockets with Gaza, which was just appalling. That This was sort of like their proof of effectiveness and they could now go around saying these drones are effective and these, these weapons are effective and I, I was very appalled that that should be, yeah, it's, it's, it's the reality but it's very, it's unacceptable that all these people, totally appalling that all these people in Gaza are dying. I mean, anybody dying, Israeli or Gaza, is, or Palestinians both, it's awful but the, the, the fact that, uh, anyway, I, as you said, to prove that they are effective is, is, is a terrible thing. With the Australian government and Albert, as I said, there was a story that came out last week that I didn't actually read, and I've talked, got it put to one side to read, so I can't talk to that in, in more detail. But I think they were tendering... Talking about cancelling their management system. Well, that would be good. Hmm. But I also read or heard that the Victorian government has got connections with Albert. I need to look into this. I do know that the um, Royal Flying Doctor Service for a while was looking at using Elbert to help it with its management systems and with pressure withdrew from that. But that certainly was bad to have the Flying Doctor Service involved with such a company. Well, another way that members of MAPW, including yourself, get the message across is through writing articles for newspapers or online publications. And your latest one... Is, um, has been published in the Canberra Times and it's headed Sowing the Seeds of Full War is Reckless and Depraved Domestic Politics. I think Australia has quote-unquote put itself out front on China. Of other countries it's, it's being very politically, deliberately um, talking about China in terms of, I mean, Mike Pazua came out talking about the drums of war, Peter Dutton and others talking as if war with China is inevitable at some point. It is so reckless in terms of the more they talk about it, A, it, it is like, more likely to make it happen, B, it suits the Chinese agenda because it, it makes it more acceptable for them to, to go into Taiwan. So the government seems to me to... The, the current government, I think, is wonderful in terms of marketing and wonderful in terms of making people look somewhere else. So, you know, the look over here, don't don't look at sexual assault, don't look at Aboriginal deaths in custody. For whatever you do, don't look at climate change. So if you get people worrying about war with China, it means that they don't think about other things. It also it also reflects and I think this is really very concerning, is that over the last decade or so there's been increasing politicisation of the public service an increasing use of advisers and gradually the Department of Defence and the intelligence agencies have got stronger whilst DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, has been losing funding and certainly we have very low numbers of diplomats compared to other countries in the OECD. And the upshot of that is that the diplomatic voices are being subdued and the defence community or the the weapons company, well, not the weapons companies, but certainly the people that are more warlike, are they're the upper hand in the voices. It's also useful for the government because it wedges Labor. If, if Labor actually says this is not appropriate, then they, and I think they did in Parliament last week, they attacked the ALP 
saying, you know, you're weak. And, and so the government feels it shifts the political narrative to where it wants to be. And I think that's, that's very reckless because not only is it damaging Australian markets, and ironically, a lot of the, the markets are being filled by American producers. So, so Biden has said quite clearly, we want competition, not conflict with China. But the Australian government, by continually going on and on about the potential for war with China, is really very reckless and very, yeah, I think running a domestic political agenda that has international ramifications. I think that's really irresponsible. Well, it doesn't actually make much sense, does it? Well, it's just so laughable that Australia would take on China in any sense anyway. And and what's happening in China with the Uyghurs and Hong Kong are appalling, but we look at West Papua, we look at Myanmar, we look at Gaza. We're not talking about going to war with those countries. I mean, there's, there's terrible things happening in many parts of the world, but we don't really need to beat our chest and say we're going to war. It's, it's appalling. Well, let's finish, Margie, with the good news story, and that's ICANN. How's it going? Really well. We're now, as you know, got the, the treaty came into force in January this year. We now have 54 countries that have passed it through their ratification or parliaments. And we have 86 countries that have signed it, so there's lots more ratifications coming. Um, we're running, if, if your listeners are interested, um, we're running a band school, which will talk, it'll be five sessions run between the 28th of June and the 20th of September. If you just put ICANN band school, um, it should come up on your feed or your, your, on your internet search. So ICANN band school. And it's five sessions and it basically just lets people know all about the treaty and all about how you can help with getting this to be something that Australia signs and ratifies. We were very pleased. The, um, ALP, when they looked at their policies earlier this year, they streamlined it, so they cut a lot of policies, but their firm commitment to sign and ratify this treaty remains. And it's clear that, I mean, Australia has signed all of the multilateral um, weapons treaties. It's absolutely clear that um, this will be signed at some point. It's just a matter of when. There's other works we're doing. We're, we're always talking with members of parliament, but we've also got the cities appear. We've got now 35 cities, including Sydney, Melbourne. One of the most recent ones was, in fact, Mount Isa, not a particularly left-wing council, but Mount Isa. Um, and, in fact, one of our ICANN board members went up to Mount Isa with some of the WILP, the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom campaigners in Queensland who've done a terrific job and took up our Nobel Prize medal to show the councillors at Mount Isa just as a thank you for their support. We recently had a webinar with um, the Australia Institute, if people want to Google that, if they want to find out more about the treaty. And we're really looking forward to the first meeting of states' parties, which is where all the countries that have ratified the treaty will get together. And with a bit of luck, that will happen next year in January in Vienna, um, hopefully in person, if we can get everybody vaccinated and, and things back to normal. It's interesting how much... Life is getting back to normal in places like America where the vaccination rates are increasing a lot. Yeah, I, I was speaking to someone over there and saying, well, you know, you're, you're, a lot of you are vaccinated, but still quite a few, there's a lot of vaccine resistance. And that person said to me, yes, what will happen is that and the numbers in the US are dropping, which is fantastic, and have dropped a lot in England. But in the pockets of vaccine resistance, what will probably happen, and it's an interesting analysis, that what will happen in the pockets of vaccine resistance, that yes, there will be coronavirus and yes people will die and then people once they see their 
that this is such that then the vaccine resistance in that population will drop down and people will start to accept it more. So it's, it's a pretty grim way of learning that the vaccines are needed. But yeah, anyway, but I'm hoping the meeting of state parties, I've, I've digressed back onto coronavirus, but I'm hoping the meeting of state parties in Austria in, will go ahead next year. Finally, Margie, just to reiterate that it was in Australia there ICANN began and it was um, the work of MAPWA that set it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Medical Association, we're very proud of MAPWA, of, of ICANN. It was like MAPW giving birth to a gorilla. Um, ICANN's gone internationally. Um, I wasn't around when it was founded. It was people like Bill Williams, Tillman Ruff, Gimity Hawkins, Dave Sweeney, Sue Wareham was a founder. We were talking to her. So they were the people that had the genius to put it together and then it spread internationally and, and yeah, got the treaty in 2017 and the Peace Prize. So, yes, MAPW feels very proud of ICANN and we worked, we worked closely together. Great to talk to you again, Margie. Well, thank you so much, Jan, for the opportunity. Take care. I was talking there with Dr Margie Beavis, who's a GP, who also works with medical students at Melbourne University and also lots to work with Medical Association for the Prevention of War and the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. And I might add, a great supporter of Tuesday Home Time and 3CR in general. So please add your support to Margie's. You can either ring now or through the week on 94198377 or you can go to the website 3cr.org.au slash donation and nominate Tuesday Home Time. And thank you. So that's it again. We need your support to keep interviewing people like Margie because um, if we don't have the money, the station doesn't work. So do please, 9419 or 3cr.org.au donate. And again, thank you. Three CR Radiothon show your support during June 2021. As much as we are lied to that what is happening in Palestine is complicated, there is nothing complicated about it. Israel maintains a regime of apartheid, ethnic cleansing and occupation. None of these concepts are new. They have all existed in some form throughout history. This nation is founded on settler colonialism. Drawing parallels between our struggles doesn't only shed light on the commonality of different social justice issues, but it also shows us that as Palestinians, our freedom and liberation is so inherently intertwined with the freedom and liberation of so many others around the world. 3CR Radio Time, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Fears are Palestinian scarves 
and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Next on Tuesday, home time for this Radiothon program. I'm speaking with anti-war activist Brian Terrell at his home in the US, the Strangers and Guests Catholic Worker Farm at Moroi in Iowa. Brian, like many others, was an active member of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which closed at the end of last year, but is continuing his activism, his writing, and hopefully a trip to Germany next month, where US nuclear bombs are stationed. But first I asked Brian about his years with Voices, beginning with when he joined. Yeah, I've been an activist since 1975, when I was 19 years old. I dropped out of college and went to New York and joined the Catholic Worker, and that was the beginning. I've been involved in anti-war and social justice work, you know, since then. And actually, I was a part of Voices in various ways from, um, you know, from the founding of Voices in the early 90s as Voices in the Wilderness. But uh, it was, oh, yeah, in, in 2009 that I kind of got to be, that was mainly the, the focus of my activism with Voices starting about then. What was it that attracted you to that organization? It was, you know, the people mostly, and the fact that it was a, uh, they're all people who were, who started it were all friends of mine uh, and people I'd been active with in other ways. And also because it was very direct, you know, nonviolent direct action oriented. It was started with the, when the sanctions were going on, between the two Gulf Wars, between 1991 and 2004, there were sanctions on Iraq that were uh, devastating. It was it was a state of siege, really. Almost nothing got in, and 
voices had. I went on one delegation then to, to Iraq in 1998, I think. But voices organized uh, delegations of people to violate those sanctions. Uh, the United States threatened us with uh, 12 years in prison and a million-dollar fine for every time we went to Iraq after the sanctions, after the, after the U.S. invaded and occupied Iraq, the sanctions were over, and uh, voices became voices for creative nonviolence and got to be much more diverse in its interests with anti-nuclear weapons and um, work on issues like mass incarceration and police violence. And we started visiting Iraq, uh, visiting Afghanistan on a regular basis and uh, forming relationships with, with people there. Uh, and also one thing about Voices is that, that, that it, it never was an official entity of any kind. It was never incorporated. It was not an NGO. It was, <laughs> you know, just uh, more of an idea than, than, than uh, a bureaucracy. It, it was never a bureaucracy. That was very comfortable for me to work with. Well, let's talk about those years. There's friendship, there's skills, there's solidarity, there's travel, there's jail. There's lots of things happening over those 12 years. Yes, and I, and, and I appreciate because I've been an activist, you know, for many years. And part of that time I was, you know, raising, we raised our kids. We live on, a, on kind of a subsistence farm here in Iowa. Lived very cheaply, but when we had, our, when our children were, Still at home, I, I worked mostly, I never worked full-time, but worked at part-time jobs, you know, mostly in nursing homes and other kind of work like that. Very low pay, but hands-on kind of work. One thing with the, with the voices I got, no one had a real salary, but we had um, a stipend. But I think what it did for me was that I was able to, during those years, just do, you know, with working things out with the folks here on the farm and other friends, um, I was able to uh, have the means and the time to write and to travel and to answer um, invitations. I think one of the things that we did, I'm thinking about now, still working very much on a, the issue of the use of drones by the military and now increasingly by police. And Voices was in the very beginning of people beginning to be aware of what the, what this means. And I think the, you know, the fact that there were several of us who had the time who could uh, and the means to go to places all over the United States where there are drone facilities and to, you know, what the local people in each of these places did was, of course, the most the most important. But I think the fact that as Kathy and Buddy and I and a few other people were uh, able to go places and, you know, having been to places like Afghanistan and, and Palestine, to be able to speak to speak about this and to be a interpersonal communication between the different uh, anti-drone groups in Nevada and California and New York, you know, in the UK as well and in Germany, uh, that, that we were able to, to kind of cross-pollinate between the different groups. You know, that the um, anti-drone movement, I think, really was very much helped by the resources that we you know, that we brought and also having the time, uh, even being able to, you know, have the support to go to jail. People in privilege, um, you know, are 
that follows us even in jails and prisons. And having the network of support to be able to do that was very, very free. Talk about the friendships that you've developed over those years and the, the ongoing friendships, both at home and abroad. I, I think that's really the, <clears throat> the, the saving grace, the, you know, the, the important thing. It's the thing that makes it possible. There's a, a richness and depth of in relationships. I think it's like when for causes people are willing to, to sacrifice and to face dangers together. This is why I've never been in the military, but I have many friends and you know many uh, relatives, of course, who, who have been. One thing I have to always respect is the camaraderie of people who've been to war together, and that, and I think for, for for many people, that's the those are the most important relationships in their lives. Is that we can, uh, you know, we can be friends and we can have our clubs and associations and things, but we don't we don't really forge relationship like we do when we sacrifice and risk together. So I'm really right now, um, you know, talking to people in in Afghanistan at the, you know this particular time very, very painful to, to realize, you know, what people are going through there now, what they've been going through for 20 years and more. It makes it real. It makes it, um, you know, these, uh, the sufferings of people in the world, these are, these are not abstractions. And I think for a lot of people, if we live more sheltered lives, we can be concerned about what's happening in places like Afghanistan and Yemen and in the, the, and what's happening in American prisons. But unless you have relationships with people in those situations and places, it can re- remain a uh, you know an abstract idea, something to be concerned about. But you don't really put yourself out for abstract ideas. You put yourself out for people who are real to you. And also, Brian, skills of being at demonstrations and adhering to nonviolent action when you're faced with the adversities I'd imagine that you are, how difficult or easy it is for you to stay with that non-violence and to stay calm in face of that adversity? I think for myself, I am usually, I feel in, in taking these actions, you know, I've done a lot of it. I've, you know, been arrested several hundred times. I was just a, uh, the 31st of May, I was arrested for the first time in more than a year. And for some people, going back to normal means going to eating in a restaurant or going to an in-person church service or going to a concert or going to an art museum or taking a bus someplace. Uh, normal means different things for different people. But for me, a part of it was to be at a demonstration and you know, being being arrested, handcuffed, and, and taken away was part of like like that's been my strange life. That's been kind of normal, but it, it is a discipline, and and you learn it, and yeah, it's something that happens. That's that's uh, can be very you know at the same time disarming in a way and and, and empowering. One thing I think of it is like doing something. You know, this is not just for our own um, therapy or own good feelings, but I feel like in a lot of ways I hope that in my daily life all the time that I'm 
working for justice and being against war and trying to work for something different. But there's there's a way that these actions focus things where I could be with a group of people and uh, this action on the 31st of May was at the uh, and Kansas City a plant where they the factory where the um, non-nuclear components of all the nuclear weapons, the, the actual missiles and the other, the guidance and all of this, and the research and development is done for like the new B-61 uh, nuclear bombs that are replacing. The United States is spending billions of dollars replacing all the you know, gravity drop nuclear bombs and all that's happening 100 miles from my house. And so to go there physically and to go onto the property and to tell the uh, federal police who represent the people who are making these bombs to say, uh, no, I'm not moving. I'm here and I'm not moving, you know, brings it into a concreteness that I think is very clarifying. It's uh, to not be a passive observer or even passive victim of of the things going on in the world, but to you know, to be taking an active an active part. Of course, it's not enough. But we really do want to not just feel better about ourselves, but we want to do want to be getting rid of nuclear weapons, getting rid of war. But these these actions have, I think, you know, I think they're very healthy for us as individuals and as groups to to sometimes act out our convictions. And the skill of negotiating with maybe police or military or private security to let them know that mm -hmm. you're going to stay there and you don't know what they're going to do next? I prefer to think about our communications to the police. and There's many theories about this, and some people do a lot more of it, and then some people don't talk to the police at all. I like to think of it more about communication rather than negotiation because... What we're talking about are things that are not negotiable. You know, that, that building nuclear weapons is a crime and it's a sin and it should stop and there isn't any kind of middle ground on that. But at the same time, we have to res respect the humanity of the people who, you know, who are involved in, you know, committing these crimes and in, um, uh, and in protecting those who do and that it, it's never, um, you know, I think we have, we have to. I feel personally that I need to act not because I am not part of the of the responsibility for these things, but to claim responsibility. Some people would would say that by demonstrating that they can make themselves innocent, wash their hands of it, and I think I'm just as responsible for the nuclear weapons being made in Kansas City as any of the people working in those plants and the, the police that are guarding it and everything. I don't feel like that, uh, this is something that they're doing and I'm good and I'm trying to stop it, but I'm taking my part of responsibility because I don't, I, I'm acting because I am responsible, not because I'm not. I'm not out, acting out of innocence, but I'm claiming my responsibility and saying, you know, we're all a part of this and I'm a part of it too and it has to stop. I'm putting my body here to say that. I think in this time in in Kansas City, it was really, we had a program outside the gate. There were several speakers. We had a sound system from 70 people were there, and five of us you know, then walked onto the property 
and refused to leave and were arrested. And the police were listening very intently. And I'm looking forward to being on trial and I'll be defending myself and having those police officers be there as witnesses against us because I'll be able to ask them what they heard and what their impressions are. You know, just when you see somebody listening to you, you, know, you want to engage in conversation and find out what they, you know, what, you know, let's, let's talk about this together. And I think the trial can be, be an opportunity to do that. But one of the officers especially was saying, I told my bosses I didn't want to do this. I told them <laughs> I didn't want to arrest you, but uh, I was ordered. I was told I had to. I wanted to make sure that we knew that. And then when all the paperwork was done, we were held for a very short time and then given a, a summons to court, and they took our handcuffs off and told us to go. And one of them, and this one officer was just saying, as we were leaving, said, and very earnestly, you know, are we friends? Are we friends? Are we okay? And just, just wanting to the assurance that we weren't angry with him. <laughs> and and I, I think that was a very special moment. At the same time, I think sometimes things get so friendly that the, the point is missed. You know, I think we are, we are in contention, and these are very, very serious things. And there are some things that, that – uh, there are many things we can compromise on and many things we can negotiate. And there's some things that, that we can't and we have to stand firm. We can be open and respectful. Part one of interview with Brian Terrell, activist, anti-war activist from the U.S. who's been at it since he was 19 in 1975. And here at 3CR we've been going just about that time too. 1976, so that's a, a long time to be working with communities, with people in struggle, whether they're in Australia, whether they're in the US, it doesn't matter where they are, 3CR is part of that network. So if you could like to help keep 3CR on air for yet another year, when you think it's 1976 to 2001, it's many, many years, so... We want to keep on going for many, many more too. 9419 8377 or go online to 3cr.org.au donate. And if you wish, you could put it down to Tuesday Home Time. So that would be great if you could do that to make sure that 3CR stays on air yet another year, like Brian, who's determined in the US to keep on his activism. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.